All right. Thanks to my amazing daughter for the introduction. I'm really excited to share today's interview with y'all. I've got Brooke Scott. Now, some of you know Brooks if you are an Emerger Strategies client or are a member of the Fly Fishing Climate Alliance. Brooks has um, been helping to grow both Emerger and the Fly Fishing Climate Alliance over the last few years and is currently uh, an advisor to the Fly Fishing Climate Alliance. Um, but Brooks' full time gig these days is executive director of the Yellow Dog Community and Conservation Fund. So um, we're going to dive into that. We're going to dive into Brooks's career. Uh, we're going to talk about some environmental threats to our fisheries. And we're mainly going to talk about all the amazing work that YDCCF is doing. And before we dive into the interview, I did just really quickly want to say um, that you can visit the sustainableangler.com to find uh, weekly blog posts, all previous episodes and merchandise. Um, also really um, excited that this year we've partnered up with Ohm Radio 96.3 FM which is Charleston's only community-supported radio station. And the Sustainable Angler is airing every Saturday at 2 p.m. Uh, so just another place to catch the Sustainable Angler. And uh, if you like what you're hearing, uh, please leave a rating and review um, on iTunes. Uh, helps us to spread our our message. So anyway, uh, thanks for tuning in and hope you enjoyed the interview. Support for the Sustainable Angler podcast comes from Emerger Strategies. Emerger Strategies is a sustainable business consultancy that was founded in 2016 with the idea of using business as a tool to solve social and environmental problems in an effort to protect the planet and the people we love. For more information, visit www.emergerstrategies.com. Thanks, Rich. Um, um, my name's Brooks. Um, I am the um, executive director for the Yellow Dog Community and Conservation Foundation. Um, I am a pretty much lifelong um, angler. Started fly fishing when I was in my um, late teens, early 20s. Um, as an escape from my prior life, which was cooking professionally, um, I parlayed my love of fly fishing into, uh, into a career um, working at a fly shop and then moving on to work for a clothing company, Patagonia, where I was for about 17 years um, until the pandemic. And that shook everything up for a lot of folks, including myself. Um, during that time frame, um, I had been following you, Rick, for quite a while um, and the work that you were doing at Emerger and uh, the Fly Fishing Climate Alliance. And I reached out to you in the summer of 2020 and said, hey, if you're ever looking for help, um, I would be interested in, in giving you a hand um, trying to make something um, you know, blow up here. So I, um, we ended up actually reconnecting after I, uh, my wife and I decided to relocate, 
Um, I'm a native Chicago and born and raised in the city. We lived there, um, raised our son there, and then moved to Montana, um, like a lot of other people, curiously, um, during the pandemic. Right. Uh, obviously, a place that I that I love as an angler, um, and uh, it was time for us for for a change. So we moved to Montana, and I was there for maybe a month before I got a phone call from you and said <laughs> you're ready to to try some stuff out. So um, we dove in together. Um, um, building out um, a little bit more of the Fly Fishing Climate Alliance. And, um, and it's been great to, to work alongside you and, and do that work and create a little more impact um, in the fishing industry, which is something that's near and dear to my heart. So um, that kind of brings, I think, bring, brings us up to speed. Feel free to add color and commentary, Rick. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's funny because um, so Brooks and I have been working closely for together for two and a half, three years on um at emerger strategies and also um fly fishing climate alliance. And um I was um super stoked to hear about um you joining up with YDCCF, Yellow Dog Community and Conservation Fund. Um because uh for a few reasons one it's like to me right up your alley right this is brooks is um a big impact person uh, from my experience working with them and um this provides a, a platform to for him to do what he does best and uh secondly i love to travel um any chance I get, um, I'm looking for uh, new experiences and new new species of fish and and all. And I mean, who doesn't, right? Um, but what I really like about, um, aside from all the work we've done together, but this particularly with YDCCF, um, is the work that it does within communities of places that, I, that I've had. Um, the opportunity to to travel and fish. And um, so without, you know, adding too much color or commentary, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> um, I will uh, kind of kick things off with you, you, you mentioned, we're going to, we're going to go back. Okay. You gave, okay. you gave the 30,000 foot view. Yes. Um, professional cook. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Um, this is a little, a little random, but, um, favorite meal to, to, to cook. Oh, I, I love, I love this question. Okay. So, um, I would say, you know, I, I, I liken that way. Well, okay. So it's really two different things. Sorry. Um, I would say, um, if you held me down, it would probably be, um, duck. However, I, I love cooking duck. It's actually one of my favorite things to eat as well. So, you know, those two things go hand in hand. Now, that said, I will layer in that my desert island food, like the, th the one thing that I could not do without, um, and if I was stuck somewhere and could only eat one thing for the rest of my life, it would be Mexican food. Mexican, okay. Yep. 100%. Uh, in general, as a, as a genre? Yeah, I mean, it's such a varied cuisine. I mean, it's, you know... What we eat in the States by and large is, you know, is sort of homogenized. But when you get into sort of like the regional cooking that takes place in Mexico, it's incredibly varied and deep and um, and wonderful. 
Yeah. I just, I crave, I crave, um, um, flavor and the flavor abounds in, in Mexican cuisine. So. All right. So I'm going to, we're going to keep moving. I'm going to follow your timeline. So then you're, you're, you're going, I got to follow my passion. I'm assuming. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Cause cooking was a passion, like unquestionably. So, um, I felt like if I could be successful doing that, I could, potentially be successful. And most of this was driven by the fact that by the time I was 30, just, just know like the sweet spot for a, um, for a professional cook is between the ages of 20 and 30. Most people burn out after that, unless they are, unless they already own their own restaurant and are, are, have already achieved, you know, and I was coming up during a time when, you know, when being a professional chef was still, you know, it was just starting to really, really build. Build. You know, the Food Network hadn't come on the scene yet. Anthony Bourdain hadn't come on the scene yet. None of these things had happened yet. So it was still in a building phase and getting there. So, um, but really the choice for me was driven by quality of life. My wife and I, um, we have a son uh, that was born um, in 1999 when I was uh, just had just turned 31. And I didn't want to, it's a tough, it's a tough business to be in and raise a family where you get to spend a lot of time together. So um, it was really driven mostly by that, plus my desire to, to just pursue something different. By the way, I love Anthony Bourdain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> read all his books. Those are those are phenomenal. Um, but so you get a job at a fly shop. What was what fly shop was it? Uh, it was called Trout and Grouse. It was in uh, in the north suburbs of Chicago. Doesn't exist anymore. Um, it was at a time. Um, so I started working there in '99. So we're f- what four or five years past the movie, you know. So fly fishing was still in that growth phase and still kind of blowing up. I mean, the best thing I can say about that, you know, in terms of like from a perspective standpoint. You know, Chicago is a big metropolitan area. It's like, I think it's like the third largest metropolitan area in the United States. Um, it had at its apex, I think five fly shops. Really? There's now two. If you don't wow. count Orvis, if you don't count Orvis, there's just two independent fly shops left in Chicago. So um, it was, um, you know, it was a huge change, honestly, a huge change. Um, I mean, I think I took like a 50% pay cut to go working in a fly shop, which is crazy when you just, when you, when you're, when you're in the middle of having a kid, like nobody does that, but you know, we figured out a way to make it work and it worked. You know, I actually continued cooking on the side for about a year just to augment my income. Uh, but eventually like made it, figured out how to make it work. And, um, you know, and it was great because it immerses you at a very, very ground level um, in so much, whether it's, you know, travel or tackle or, you know, all of these things. And um, mostly, you know, and this, you know, this is a thread that will follow throughout our conversation. Mostly it helped me build relationships, um, especially in the industry. Um I realized very quickly um, after being there that, you know, it's a small business. There's like three people that work there. The ceiling is very, very low. Like you're only going to go so far. It's not necessarily a growth position. So I realized that, you know, what I was going to want to do is probably figure out how to, how to make that next step that would take me out of the shop and towards working for, you know, probably a bigger brand. And when I thought about who those brands were that I would most like to work for, 
Patagonia was absolutely at the top of the list. Um, I've been a brand user and advocate for a long time. So, you know, I was lucky. I got to meet a lot of amazing people who worked for the company. Um, and when the company decided in 2003 to open their first store in the Midwest, um, I got a tip that it was happening and um, put my resume in and got lucky enough um, and blessed enough, honestly, to get selected to open the first store. Um, uh, I basically built a team and we were off to the races. And I ran, I ran the first store in Chicago for about four and a half years and, and then moved into um, a district manager position on the retail side. So direct to consumer, I ran stores basically and did that for pretty much the rest of my career at Patagonia for the next um, another 12 years or so. Um, and ran stores from, honestly, from DC to Montana over the course of that time period. And what, what was it that drew you to, I think I know the answer, but I would rather you, you, you hear <laughs> sure. it, but what was it that drew yeah. you to, to Patagonia in particular? Mission, hundred percent, unquestionably. Like I'm, um, it's such a unique and different way to run a business. And, you know, I had an outsider's view, obviously, and I got to get on the inside and learn a lot about how and why it exists. Um, and it's really um, the reason Patagonia is so successful uh, is because they're relentlessly consistent with their message. They, they, they're, they, they are who they are and who they have been ever since they were founded. You know, and that's totally um, authentic, right? Yeah, completely authentic. I mean, they are, it's, it's Yvonne and Melinda's company. It is who they are, you know, and the people that go to work there, that's the other sort of magic to it is the people that go to work there, they're universally connected almost at a, like a DNA level with this belief in the work that they do. You could be doing anything. You could be folding fleece in a shop. You could be, a, you know, a data analyst in Ventura, and you have a very deep understanding of how the work that you do connects to the mission of the company and makes a difference. And, you know, that's when you can, when you can have that engaged of a workforce, you're going to, you're going to achieve the things that they've achieved, honestly. Yeah. And, that, and that's one of the, you know, somewhat of a, an aside, but it, it's true with, with, um, emerger strategies and and one of the things that I've heard from clients is that when you start to execute purpose, mission at that level, and in this particular case, it has to do with saving the planet, right? But yeah. um, you attract and retain talent in a way that uh, most companies you know, how much are they spending on, on turnover? Um, and, 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 and you just don't see that in companies that are, that are as authentic as Patagonia's and, um, pretty cool. to Yeah. Their biggest problem is how to filter through all the talent that's applying for every job. that they have. (laughs) Right. Right. The best problem to have. (laughs) Um, all right. So you're, Patagonia for 16 years. That's yeah. uh, an oversight to just say Patagonia for 16 <laughs> years. Uh, that's that's a career in and of itself. Um, I felt like it. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yep. Um, but you grow with them. You become a, a, a district manager, overseeing stores. 
Um, COVID happens. You and I connect. We, uh, I think, do a pretty pretty decent job of growing the Fly Fishing Climate Alliance. Yeah. We brought on some new folks while you know while we've been working together, which is great. Um, I think we've got over fifteen companies carbon neutral um, mm-hmm. through the Climate Alliance, and that is still going um, strong. Uh, we continue to grow and uh, excited about that. Um, but now I want to talk about YDCCF and well, no, I don't. Hang on, let me back up <laughs> because I'm kind of looking at this. You mentioned relationships, but I'm kind of looking at her going if Brooks takes a pay cut to follow a passion to work in a fly shop then gets connected to mission at Patagonia, then says, okay, I see what you're doing with the Climate Alliance. That resonates with me. I want to help in that way. Who were, who inspired you from a conservation or environmental? Because clearly that's part of Brooke Scott's DNA, right? Is sure. yeah. who, 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 who were some of your heroes and, who inspired you to to go down and sort of, I guess that path? Yeah, that's that's a good question. You know, um, growing up in the Midwest, you know, you have to mention names like Aldo Leopold and Sigurd Olson. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the Northwoods of Wisconsin and Minnesota, and you know, their work, you know their work emanates from those places. So, you know, that's, I can be hard pressed to say that's not part of it. Um, I was blessed to have, um, you know, I grew up in a family that wasn't necessarily super outdoorsy. Um, but my uncle, um, on my mom, my mom's brother, um, also grew up in Chicago, um, but um, ended up going to law school and then settled in Minocqua, Wisconsin, which is up in the Northwoods and ran a very small, you know, practice there. And, um, but he did it because he loved being outside. I mean, he had two Britney Spaniels and a boat on a lake and a cabin. And, you know, I would go up there and spend time during the summer and during the winter. And, uh, Interestingly enough, he was also a really, really good cook. Um, so I think, you know, in retrospect, I think I've, I've realized, you know, he had a bigger impression on me maybe than I originally thought. Uh, but that love of the outdoors um, and, you know, it flows naturally. You know, you go and spend time in a beautiful place. You want to make sure that it stays beautiful. Um, I, I realize I've already mentioned his name, but Yvonne Chenard is unquestionably part of this as well. You know, Um their their desire and their impact um, to preserve what little we have left of the natural world is a huge, it's a huge inspiration, you know. It's honestly more than anything else. While I love the work that I did at Patagonia and I love the relationships that I built and the people that I that uh, that I've come to know and have become some of my closest friends and will remain so for the rest of my life. While all of that was wonderful. Um, being able to um, see how business can impact um, impact that discussion, impact um, small groups doing great work, um, and try to change the 
try to change the narrative, try to try to flip the paradigm, try to like actually use business to, this is the old mission statement, not the you new mission statement, the old mission statement was to use business to inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. I mean, it's, it's, um, it gave this extra layer of purpose to the work that I was doing. And it's absolutely what kept me there for that period of time. Yeah. And honestly, like you said, it's what made me more than likely reach out to you as a result. <laughs> right. In the work that you were doing, and I thought that what you were trying to do and what we're still trying to do, you know, is, is, is the future. Honestly, it's how, it's how we're going to actually solve the, this huge crisis that we're in. Well, I mean, so let, let's talk about that then. Um, the, the crisis that we're in, I mean, there's, there's a number of, depending on how you, how you slice it, um, it's almost a death by a thousand cuts, but, you know, threats to our planet, threats to our fisheries. I mean, it's a little bit of a, 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 uh, you could go down a a hundred different paths, but in my opinion, the overarching threat is climate change, right? Because it's, uh, it's changing migratory patterns. It's changing snowpack. It's, uh, sea level rise. It's, it's all these extreme events, um, Mm. that it's bringing, bringing on. And the, the craziest part about it to me is that it's fixable today. I mean, the, at least the solutions exist, right? Yeah. Um, and so, anyway, let, let, let's talk climate for a minute, and then we'll we'll, we'll uh, keep on moving. But what did what yeah. did you what what was your thought when it was like when we were first kind of hooking up and starting to to work together? What was it? Um, what were maybe some of the things you learned through that experience maybe of, of working with businesses on climate action? Oh, <laughs> that it's really hard, especially at a ground level um, to do, you know, it, or let me rephrase that. The perception is that it's really hard yeah. and yes, it does involve some work. Um, but, you know, again, I feel like we're turning this into the entrepreneur podcast Um, Because I'm going to use a quote, and that's one of my favorite quotes of his. Um, Living and examining life is a pain in the ass. And it's true. (laughs) Um, So... That was that was a big thing was was realizing that, you know, and it honestly came through having conversations with with small business owners like going down this path. you, You realize that it's the thing, you know, this is about some in some ways it's about control. You know, um, a small business owner can only control so much. So there has to be a, a desire for them to to want to pursue this work. And you know, for the ones that that get there, that that actually achieve you know neutrality or net zero or or you know realize a great reduction in their in the footprint of their business, is because um, they believe that it's their responsibility to do whatever they can do. Right. You know. 
though, it's trying to part of that initial conversation. A lot of times is trying to understand how they got to that point, like why, why they believe that this is something they need to work on. Um, or it's our job to convince them why they need to believe that it's something to work on. Right. You know, there's always that, there's always that end of the proposition as well. I mean, that one usually comes down to, as you know, um, if you're a fly shop owner or a business or, or, or a tackle manufacturer um, or a lodge owner, all of those people have the same thing in common. Their business relies on a healthy environment. Right. No fish, no fishermen, no, no anglers, no business. So um, making that argument actually gets relatively easy, you know, but it's, it's also, you know, you know, if you go down to like the granular to, to the fly shop, to the fly shop level, you know, it's trying, it's trying to help them understand what it is that they need to do and what they're capable of doing. You know, and, you know, it's um, it can be, you know, it, it can be daunting to think about, oh, my God, am I going to open this Pandora's box of things? And what am I actually going to discover as a result of this? <laughs> you know, and that's why I think that's one of the reasons why we've been successful in, in the work that we've done is because um, we help allay those fears. We we're, we're the people that can sit down and talk you through it because we understand your perspective. We understand where you're coming from. We understand what your fears are and we understand how to, how to help you navigate through that process. So, um, and the process itself, interestingly enough, other than a few little things, isn't crazy challenging. It's really not, you know, it's, it's very simple, you know, and people have heard this ad nauseum from you, which is, you know, you can't, you know, you got to measure it first. That's where you right. got to start. That's just a matter of figuring out. All right. So what are those measurements and how do you get to them? So um, that's a, that's a, I mean, we're going, you know, I'm getting a little bit deep into the weeds, but it really is about you know, trying to, trying to get people to understand that, you know, once you, once you've committed, once you, once you've gotten in your head to the fact that you, you want to be able to control the things that you can control, it's figuring out how to actually do that. And that's where, that's where a merger comes in. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not, this is like an old sustainability saying. It's like what gets managed gets measured, right? Because you're you're introducing a new set of metrics. Yeah. Um into to be clear, business. businesses measure businesses measure everything already. This is just another measurement that they right. need to they need to go down the path with. And it's uh it's interesting to go to, to go through it, work through it with someone, but it's also very rewarding um when you can demonstrate. Uh, reduction in the footprint or they decide to purchase offsets and go carbon neutral. It's all, um, that's real progress to, to me. Um, and, and whereas they wouldn't have done anything other if, if you didn't interject, they would have done nothing to begin with. So you could argue that, you know, they're, they're taking small steps, but uh, they're, they have, could have huge impact, which sort of, um, leads me to my next round of questions in terms of uh, 
Yellow Dog Community and Conservation Fund and its impact. Um, I've I've been following YDCCF, uh, and I'll let you you could obviously speak more elaborately about this than I can. But it, it was created of not not all that long ago. I feel like yeah yeah we're still we're a pretty young organization, and that's a good yeah. sort of segue for me to sort of talk about a little bit about YDCCF because I'm sure there's. A bunch of people that may not know, you know, who we are and what we do. Um, so, YDCCF was put together in 2016 by Jim Klug and Ian Davis, who are the principal owners of Yellow Dog Fly Fishing, which is based in Bozeman. Uh, for those of you who may not know who Yellow Dog is, how you don't, I'm not quite sure because if you're <laughs> in any fishing magazine or in the fishing sphere, um, we seem to be everywhere. Um, an amazing film, by the way. When I was first getting in, like into fly fishing, those films were like, yep, mind blowing. So anyway, sorry to yep. interrupt, but yeah, no, 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 that's great. Um, so um, Yellow Dog is the um, pretty much the nation's largest um, adventure fly fishing travel company. Um, represent something like two hundred and forty destinations around the world. Wow. Um, and um, it, YDCCF was created basically to be um, Yellow Dog's way of giving back to the communities that they send anglers. It actually started very innocuously on a trip in 2016. You know, they had already, you know, they already, both of both Jim and Ian already knew that, you know, part of what they wanted to be able to do was to give back. They just hadn't necessarily figured out the mechanism to do so. Um, but Ian was down on a trip with a couple of other anglers in Punta Allen on the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Um, and um, they just had an experience down there that, you know, made them realize that, you know, hey, we could potentially turn this into something. Basically what happened was is that um, they were on a tour, they went to a local school, um, and one of the guests on, it was a, it was a hosted trip that Ian was, uh, leading, uh, one of the guests, um, had their kids with them and the kids went to use the bathroom and the bathrooms didn't work. So, um, Ian asked, you know, they, they asked one of the lodge managers there, you know, Hey, you know, what's going on there? And he was like, oh, they haven't worked in years. And the, Ian was like, well, that's kind of crazy. And they went back that night, uh, back to the lodge and, um, they auctioned off all of their gear to the guests to raise money. And then they gave that money to the community to fix the bathrooms. That's a, that, I mean, unbelievable. It's yeah. It's simple, but it's simple when you think about it. Yeah. Um, that, that actually evolved into, um, into YDC, into YDCCF and into, um, uh, Ian leading tournaments down in Punta Allen for a number of years to raise funds for a number of different projects for the Punta Allen community. Um, so um, if you've been to Punta Allen or if you ever go, you will see a lot of um, a lot of our impact. Um, here's the thing. Um, I think the the secret to the secret of what makes YDCCF successful is that we're not actually like creating projects. You know, all we're doing is leveraging relationships. There's the relationship word again. You know, we, you know, Yellow Dog has amazing relationships with all of these partners all over the, all over the world. And what we do is, you know, we talk to the people in the community. Hey, what's going on? You know, what do you need? What are things that will, will actually impact your lives and make your lives here better? Um, and 
you know, the community brings forward ideas and, and we try to help fund those ideas. Um, and, you know, because it's community generated, community led, um, community executed, um, when when you have an engaged local community who wants to get something done and we can help provide funding for it, great things happen, honestly. Yep. And what are what are so like so, so I've 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 been fortunate to 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 go to Punta Allen and um I guess the engaging with the community but like so so how does the process work if one of these communities do they reach out to y'all and say hey we need help with something or how, how does mm -hmm. how does that work yeah sometimes i mean um you know it can filter up through um through yellow dog itself through you know because each of the each of the um, program directors at yellow dog obviously has great relationships with all of those individual lodge owners right so that's part of it for sure you know we certainly fund other, you know, we, we, we fund things that come through in other ways as well. Like we have, you know, we have existing relationships with some programs that have, um, that, that have projects that they do sort of on an annual basis, um, that we've helped fund and will continue to help fund because we believe in the work that they're doing. But a lot of times it is that it is, you know, it's, it's, it's figuring out how do we, how do we solve a problem? Um, um, and because we have that, again, we have that on the ground existing relationship with with those with those launch programs, you know, they're the ones who are going to know what the needs are. I'll give you an example. So um, the project that we just completed, um, well, the community just completed last November in Punta Allen. Um, sorry to stay there, but it's one of the places where we've had the most impact. Um, was um, uh, a teacher's dormitory. Um, that came out, honestly, out of a need that the community realized uh, because um, teachers have to travel a really long way to get to Put Allen. Put Allen's actually hard to get to. <laughs> um, you have to fly, you know, if you're a traveling angler, you fly into Cancun, you get on a you get on a van. You drive down through Tulum, you know, and depending on where you're going, you drive all the way the rest of the way to Putalan, which is a long drive over a really crappy road. Yep. Um, or you stop at the at the south end of Tulum, right after the end of the biosphere, and you get on a boat and you go the rest of the way by boat, um, just because nobody wants to drive the road if they don't have to. So if you think about it, like the teachers, most of the teachers have to come from at least as far as Tulum. Um, and they're not going to do that, obviously, on a daily basis. So they have to come and they have to stay in the community. Now, um, the problem is, is that the community didn't really have a great way of housing them. You know, the old the old teachers' um, quarters, honestly, were like they were like a tent house with hammocks and and no running water, and you know, and it's just you know, it's a tropical environment. It's not great. So um, they realized that the, the key to getting um, quality educators down there to stay was to build housing that was that was adequate. 
Um, so um, we, along with a number of other, you know, along with another other organizations and donors helped put together uh, enough money to get that process off the ground in, wow, this was 2019. It took a while, <laughs> obviously because of the pandemic as well, you know, it took longer because of that. But now, uh, since that uh, facility was completed um, late last year, um, they now have gotten more applications to be a teacher in Putown than they've ever seen. And they have their, you know, to put it the way one of the lodge owners put it to me is like they have their choice of, of people. And um, as a result, you know, those people are going to want to come, they're going to want to stay and they're going to want to come back. And that continuity both of both of the, the sort of being able to choose from a wider array of applicants and being able to retain them for a longer period of time, that continuity is going to result in a better education for the kids in the community. So that's awesome, first and foremost. Um, but we're my head went with this and thinking about it, which are which is impact that may not ever be able to be measured, but if you look at, um, I don't know, uh, Project Drawdown, when it was like 100 climate solutions they came up with, yeah. I think one of the top five and maybe even number one was educating girls. Hmm. And you think about like how many problems that that simple act of building a dorm solves that are beyond measure right yeah. um it, it's it, it's pretty incredible i mean you know that's doing the world some good um yeah. in a in a in a really great way um so anyway i just i love that um and what are uh tell me about i know you were down in the bahamas recently right um, was yeah in february what 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 project is is happening down there? So we have uh, we actually have um, a number of things going on in the Bahamas, but the thing I went down there for was um, it's sort of a um, you know it's sort of a, a duplication of what we did in Punta Allen in a lot of ways. Um, so um, we've wanted to you know we. I'll go back a little bit. Um, Hurricane Dorian happened in 2019. It wiped out, honestly, the Northern Islands in the Bahamas, specifically the east end of Grand Bahama um, and the north end of Abaco got, you know, that storm basically parked itself over those two spots for like days on end. Um, and we, the, the fly fishing community rallied during this and um, YDCCF was sort of the, was sort of the, we were the, the, the nonprofit of choice for the fly fishing community. Basically we set up a donations page. It was called double hall for Dorian. We, you know, we raised, uh, you know, we helped raise a lot of money and um, part of my job honestly has, is, is making sure that that money um, makes it into the right places. Cause keep in mind, we raised all that money in 2019 and then the pandemic hit in 2020. So things shut down and it got really hard to actually um, put that money to work. Um, so um, 
we've had some successes in doing so. So the Bahamas is always going to be a sort of area of concern for us, not only because of Dorian, but because, you know, it's a, it's a amazing country, a wonderful travel destination. And, you know, it's, you know, it's going to be impacted continually by storms and by sea level rise and climate change and all of these things. So it, it needs, it, it needs sort of, it's going to need constant attention. Um, so, um, we went down in February, um, to start up a new tournament series, you know, to take the model that we created in Punta Allen and bring it to the Bahamas. And the idea there is we're going to raise funds doing tournaments in play in specific places for specific projects. So the first one, um, and it'll be a recurring thing until we get the project done. So the first one was at, um, was at Swain's K Lodge, uh, which is on Mangrove, Mangrove Key. Uh, which is in the middle of um, Andros. And um, they have been in the process for the last two or three years of building a new community park. Um, the kids basically don't have, the kids and adults really don't have anywhere to go to, to work out, to run. Running is a huge thing in the Bahamas, by the way. Um, um, play basketball, um, tennis, all of these things. So they have, you know, they have a, they have a, a place where they can actually build this thing. And they've now built a basketball court and some grandstands and they've just finished a structure that'll operate as sort of, um, you know, sort of like a clubhouse, changing room, bathrooms, that sort of stuff, but they still have to build a track and a kid's park and, and tennis courts and those sorts of things. So what we do, the tournament model basically works is we go out to Yellow Dog's sort of vast audience and say, hey, come to the Bahamas, fish for two or three days. Um, we're going to raise funds while we're there to go to this project. Um, so, um, you know, part of the part of the fees that um, that um, that tournament anglers pay include partially a donation. You know, we go out to our uh, partners and um, um, and solicit donations, both cash and 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 um, prizes for an auction that we run during the actual tournament. Um, and we go, we fish. In this case, we went and had a, the the community through a great sort of uh, party to celebrate their accomplishments thus far as well as to uh continue to fundraise um and um it was a you know the fishing was uh fun and challenging and you know dealing with all the things you normally deal with in a saltwater environment whether it be wind or tide or this that or the other and and you know we had a the anglers had a great time and we raised a good amount of money for the project and we're just going to continue to execute this we're going to do another one um next year at 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 uh at mangrove mangrove key and then we're going to do um a new one, the second one in the series is going to be at East End Lodge, which is um, on Grand Bahama. Um, and that's going to go towards um, the East End um, um, Dorian Relief Fund, which is uh, set up by uh, Rob Neher, who runs um, East End Lodge. Um, and what he's trying to do is, McLeanstown is a small town um, just adjacent to where East End Lodge is. And uh, it was, honestly, it was wiped out. Um, and, um, their goal there is honestly to bring people back 
bring people back into the community. And the, the way to do that is honestly help them, help them rebuild, rebuild their homes, honestly. So um, that's what that one's going to be. That'll happen. I think June of 2024, I think is what we're planning for. Nice. And, and what, I, what I like about that model is if you go, you know, fish in that tournament, you're, you know, where you're, donations going to a specific project and that to me like just on a personal level that's kind of rewarding where it's like if i had a connection to a place or to a lodge and it's like you know having fished in uh the bahamas a few times and you get to know the guides and the community and um it makes it more personal and and very much like hey i'm helping my friends uh versus like hey i'm writing a check to some Right. Like foundation. And I guess they're going to distribute it. You know, it's like, no, I'm going to help some people that I care about and I know about and place that I care about. That's honestly, it's one of the, what you're talking about is sort of, I think one of the sort of our core, our core pieces uh, at YDCCF is, is, you know, anytime I've taken a trip anywhere, a big part of what I take away is, the people that I meet and what that place is like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you go to these amazing places and you have great experiences and the fishing is great, but at the end of the day, it's really about the connection that you make with the people in the place yeah. and, you know, leaning into that and, and, and letting anglers know, Hey, as traveling anglers, you know, it's great that we have, we're privileged and blessed to be able to go to these places but there is a little piece of, you know, of responsibility as well towards keeping them and, and, and making sure that those places stay resilient and vibrant and are wonderful communities for the people that live there. You know, because part of that experience that you have is tied to that. Absolutely. Like you can't, you can't, there's no argument there. Like if you have an amazing experience that didn't happen by accident. Right. Yeah. And and especially you know thinking about Punta Al, I mean this this is all over the world, but I mean just from my own personal experiences in the Bahamas and Punta Al, and I mean th- those communities are in in many ways are built around the 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 guiding community and that and that lodge and what they've built and how how well they know their own fishery and what it brings and the understanding that they know that their children will have better lives because of what they're doing. And um, it's a really special uh, in many places, um, the, the sort of lodge experience is not just a fly in, catch my fish, fly out deal. Um, yeah. It's, it is a true experience. Yeah. There's an immersion that happens for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, what else, how can people can just like every angler decide I want to make a donation or how, how does that work? How do people support YDCCO? A bunch of different ways. Um, the part of the beauty of the relationship that, uh, YDCCF has with yellow dog, keep in mind, we're two separate things. Like YDCCF is a separate 501 C3 registered nonprofit foundation. Um, but we get some of our funding from, from Yellow Dog, and that happens because Jim and Ian are, can, are committed towards, you know, the foundation and its goals. So um, 
it's great because literally every time you book a trip with Yellow Dog, a portion of that money ends up back with the foundation. Um, it's it's honestly the only travel company that um, that has that arrangement set up. So every trip booked basically generates a small amount of money going towards towards the foundation. So that's that's part A. Like you're doing it if you choose to book a trip with Yellow Dog. Which, by the way, just so people understand, doesn't cost you more than if you called the lodge itself and booked the trip with them. Right. <laughs> get what you get on top of it. I'm sorry to stump a little bit for Yellow Dog. What you get on top of it is all of the um, all of the extra travel support and 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 guidance um, towards making sure that the money you're investing in and in taking a trip somewhere, um, you maximize that investment and have an amazing time because you've got all of these experts giving you advice on how to, how to have a great time while you're there. So, um, that's, that's an easy one. You know, obviously if you're in a destination, um, and you have a, you have a wonderful trip and you can, you come back and you're like, God, that was so amazing. And I loved it. You know, by all means, you can go to www.ydccf.org backslash give and donate directly to the donate directly to the foundation. Um, we do, you know, we have, um, I'll give you an example. Like we ran a pro we're currently running a project, a multi-year project in Ishlac, also in Mexico, a little bit further down, um, uh, toward closer to the Belgian border, um, um, where um, it's called the Ishlac English Project. And what we're doing is, um, you know, we helped fund um, ESL English, English as a second language instructors to go down for a week and work with the community on their English language skills. You know, that helps them better their job prospects and become, you know, potentially more attractive um, as employees, um, as well as increase um, the experience the tourists have, and you know, when they when they travel to Ishlax, if you think one down small, Ishlax also really really small. Yeah. Um, so, um, but if you go like you know, so our partner there is Jesse Colton at X Flats, and uh, if you go into uh, if you book a trip to Flax and you go into the lodge and you'll see a poster for the Ishlak English project on the wall and you can scan it and donate directly to the Ishlak English project. So we try to do that in places where we have. Um, those things going on. That's really cool. Um, is there any any other projects that we haven't discussed that you'd like to mention um, before I, I shift gears and talk fishing for the <laughs> remainder of the of the podcast? Um, we um, let's see. I, I think I'd be remiss not to talk about the work that we did in Belize. Um, it happened honestly before my before my time coming on board as as ED. Um, uh, but um, in um, 2017, 2018, uh, into 2019, we we helped uh, as part of a consortium of of interests, uh, which was called the Coalition for Sustainable Fisheries. We helped um, push the Belizean government towards instituting a countrywide gillnet ban, um, mm -hmm. which really was about sustaining the flats fishery in Belize, which is a huge source of tourist income for the country. So um, we were instrumental in getting that across the finish line, and it was a it, it was a big deal, and I think continues to be a big deal. I think. The challenge in Belize, as it exists um, in a number of places, 
is um, at least on that end of things is enforcement. Uh, that's a tough one to figure out uh, because there just isn't a lot of um, there aren't a lot of resources available to make sure that that ban stays enforced. Um, so that's something that is a longer term thing that we're going to continue to work on. The other part of that equation, certainly in Belize, is ongoing development. Um, there are a lot of projects that um, need attention because they they tend to be super invasive and destructive to the saltwater flats environment. I'm speaking specifically of, of, of um, tourist destination places like dive lodges and stuff like that um, that are built over the flats. Basically, they're over the water developments and they impact the flats, they impact the, the flat species down there. Um, so, you know, you'll hear us talk about that. You'll hear, you know, groups like uh, Bonefish and Tarpon Trust, which is a great organization, also talk about that stuff. And I think we're all sort of working towards figuring out what a bigger solution is to making sure that um, people understand and continue to understand the value of the flats fishery in that part of the world. Um, yeah. So um, that's something that's, you know, it's constantly, you know, on my radar and something that we're, we're going to continue to work towards um, making sure is, is something that stays viable. Love it. Um, protect what you love, right? I mean, that's, yep, the, exactly. that's the deal. Yep. <laughs> um, well, speaking of, of love, um, I am, and you already know this, but <laughs> I am currently immersed in a in a tarpon uh, <laughs> psycho crazy obsession right now. I've got a couple of trips lined up this one this month and one early June or it's still April. One in May, less than a month away. One in early June. I'm psyched about it. That said. If you had to ask me right now, what is my favorite saltwater species on fly? I'm going to say tarpon just because that's all I'm thinking about. Sure. <clears throat> what about you? What's your favorite mm-hmm. saltwater species of tarpon? Saltwater species on fly. Hmm. Snook. Snook, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Snook are fun. Redfish, too. Like you and I got to go redfishing in October and it was, we, had a, we, we had a good time. Uh, yeah. that's, that's super fun. Uh, but, you know, it, I actually, the type of red fishing you and I were doing is not that different from the snook fishing that I've done, which is, you know, backcountry. Um, in your case, we're on salt flats with backcountry and the mangroves and that sort of stuff. You know, I'm, you know, I grew up in the upper Midwest. So um, while there is an abundance of trout, if you know where to look, um, it can be challenging to invest uh, the amount of time that is needed, especially if you're in a city environment and you're trying to get to where the trout fishing is. So it ends up being that you, uh, you end up doing a lot, or at least I did ended up doing a lot more smallmouth bass fishing, which is yeah. they're there, they continue to be. If you ask me what my favorite freshwater species is, that was next. Smallmouth, smallmouth bass for sure. Smallmouth bass. They are, they are a blast. Not that I don't love, I mean, I live in trout country, so I love trout fishing, but like I'm constantly thinking about how to where I'm going to find bass, which is crazy, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's just, it was, you know, they're just super fun and they live in amazing places. Um, and you know, similar in the way trout do, they're just different places. Um, but you know, that I, I connect, I connect smallmouth, uh, certainly a lake, lake smallmouth a little bit with, uh, a little bit with snook fishing, you know, they're, they're, they're ambush predators. So. Ambush predators is right. That's, 
Yeah, that's the the the. It's all it's all you know. I think every it's it's the grab, right? It's it's all yeah, yeah. every oh, 100%, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and bass are certainly aggressive grabbers um, when they get yeah. their opportunity. Yeah. Um, there was something else. Oh yeah. So what's the what's the latest on uh, Montana fishing right now? It's for frame of reference. It is. Yes, this is dated. It's Wednesday, April 26th. So what is late April Montana fishing looking like right now? Pretty good right now. We're starting, I would say we're on the, we're definitely on the, um, on the uptake right now between now and when runoff starts, we're still in pre-runoff, which is great. Um, as the temperatures come up, um, fish are definitely getting more active. Um, you're even starting to see, you know, you can, you're, you'll start to see betas, um, Squala is pretty much done more than likely by now, which is a small spring snowfly that comes out in these parts. Um, March browns, wow, midges are crazy now. Like it's insane. Like the midge hatches are, are, are off the charts right now. So that'll continue honestly until um, until the bulk of runoff happens. And you know, this year's going to be a crapshoot because the snowpack was just so amazing. It was, it, it, yeah, it was a good year for snowpack, which is great. I mean, the hope obviously is that we get a long, slow warm up that gradually will allow that water to seep in over time and pulse up those groundwater flows so that we're not, we don't, we don't run into Hudal, you know, in, two years ago it started in like may but you know last year it was last year was pretty good you know we a little bit too much of a quick runoff last year as you may remember especially in my neck of the woods yeah uh, i live i live in livingston so the yellowstone's you know in my backyard um but um long slow runoff means good flows late season which is obviously great for the fish and has the nice sort of side benefit of helping to keep the wildfire season at bay yeah all right last question <laughs> you got des deserted somehow some some way in the montana backcountry mm. and the only prospect of anything to eat is catching a, a trout what's the you have one fly what is it oh that's a really good question. Um, one fly. I'm going to say a uh, Pat's rubber legs. A Pat's what? Pat's rubber legs. Oh, rubber legs. Yeah. 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 It's a small, like, you know, stone fly imitation with. I mean, it basically, it looks like a woolly worm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not anything super fancy, but it'll you know you're gonna catch an eating size fish with it more than likely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it. That's yeah. uh, that that that's that's Brooks's recommendation. Um, make sure you have <laughs> make sure you have some of those in your in your fly box. Uh, go support a, a fly shop and pick some of those up and. Uh, support YDCCF in any way that you can, whether it's booking a trip through Yellow Dog or uh, making a direct donation. And just wanted to say, uh, Brooks, as you become a, a 
pretty close friend of mine over the years. Just wanted to say thanks for everything that you do. Appreciate it. Um, really stoked to uh, see where YDCCF goes under your leadership. And um, yeah, thanks for thanks for your time. Thanks, Rick. Man. Loved it. Loved getting a chance to talk. And thanks for being such a great partner over the years. Yeah, man. Uh, special thanks to Brooke Scott for uh, taking the time to do an interview. Um, check out ydccf.org uh, to support the work that they're doing. Um, and also, if you'd like to show your support for the Sustainable Angler podcast, uh, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. Um, or visit our website, thesustainableangler.com, and pick up some sweet, sweet merch. 